evening. Good evening and welcome. Uh, my name is Usama Makdesi, and I'm the Chancellor's Chair and Professor in the Department of History here at UC Berkeley. Before I introduce our speaker and the event this evening, I was asked to read the statement by the law school where we're currently convening. The law school says, quote, free speech and academic freedom are foundational values for the University of California. UC Berkeley is committed to the belief that speech we may not like or agree with should be confronted with respectful speech rather than censorship. UC Berkeley's principles of community call for civility and respect in our personal interactions. If you would like to express a point of view that is different from what our guests present this, after, this evening, you may do so in any area of campus that is open to public free speech. You, of course, may ask questions at the appropriate time, and you'll have the, the, note, the notes uh, that will be distributed. You are uh, at the appropriate time. However, you are not permitted to disrupt this event. We ask you, as audience members, to be respectful of the speakers and the students in attendance and refrain from any disruptive behavior. If you attempt to disrupt this event, you will be asked to leave the venue and face possible student disciplinary action. So, end quote. On the less, on the less disciplinary note, I want to acknowledge all the sponsors of this lecture. At UC Berkeley, they are the Law Students for Justice in Palestine, the Department, the Department of History, the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, the Department of Ethnic Studies, the Islamophobia Research and Document Documentation Project of the Center for Race and Gender. I also need to acknowledge the assistance of Norkel Sabil, Dr. Dr. Hatem, uh, Dr. Hatem Bazian, as well as the indispensable help of Mr. Hassan Fouda. I realize, of course, that we're gathered here in extraordinary circumstances, given the ongoing inhumane brutalization of Gaza. I realize as well that there's a lot of pain and anger in this room. Many of you, like me, are suffering. Many have friends in Palestine and Israel, and some of you have lost friends or family because of the ongoing situation. Many of you are angry, as I am, at an evident double standard we see everywhere in this country, at the devaluation of Palestinian humanity and history, including by members in this institution. Many of you are suffering intimidation, especially the students here, for standing up for justice and equality in Palestine. I hope, however, you will draw some little hope from the fact that we are hosting a figure as distinguished as Professor Ilan Pape. Distinguished, <laughs> distinguished and at the same time down to earth. There are very few figures who are as august and as intelligent and as brilliant as Elon and at the same time as down to earth. I say this because Elon is not only a brilliant historian and colleague, he's also a wonderful person whose presence here is much needed to provide crucial context to help us make sense of what is going on in Israel and of course in occupied Palestine. Professor Ilan Pape is the director of the European Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Exeter, Exeter in the UK, and the first such center, as far as I'm aware, anywhere in Europe. And in fact, anywhere in Europe or the United States. He received his DPhil 
that's English for PhD, from the University of Oxford in 1984, where he worked under the supervision of uh, Professor Albert Horani. Until 2007, Ilan was a professor at the University of Haifa, from which he was expelled due to his ideological positions. In other words, he actually insisted on unearthing and um, supporting research about the Nakba of 1948. He moved to Exeter, where he teaches now at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies. Professor Pape has written 20 books to date, the most famous of which, without any doubt, is his 2006, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, um, which drew, of course, the ire of many in the political establishment and many in the academic establishment, because Elon was one of the first, in English at least, and from an Israeli perspective, a dissident perspective, to put the question of ethnic cleansing straight, um, straight up there, so in a way that was sort of difficult to deny. He's also the author of The Biggest Prison on Earth, A History of the Israeli Occupation. His most recent book is co-edited with Ramzi Baroud, and it's entitled, intriguingly, Our Vision for Liberation. But more than anything else, Professor Pape reminds us of the ethical stakes of doing good historical work. He also exposes, in doing this good work, the consequences of insidious dehumanizing and dehistoricizing work. Professor Pape, needless to say, is not only a friend, not only a colleague, um, he's also from, uh, born in Haifa. He served in the Israeli army in 1973, and yet today he's one of the leading critics of colonial Zionism and one of the clearest voices against the inhumane and unethical treatment of the Palestinian people. For that, as I have noted, Ilan has been persecuted, precisely because he disproves the idea that what is happening in Palestine and in Israel is an inherent or age-old religious conflict. He insists, correctly in my view, that what has been happening in Palestine and Israel is a secular conflict, a colonial conflict, where each of us has the ability to affiliate with or against justice, but it's a secular decision. He reminds us that what is at stake today is the question of how we want to envision our future. What kind of future do we want to fight for? And to do that, Elon has always said, we need to know what kind of past we have gone through to get to the point where we are today. So please join me in welcoming Professor Ilan Pape, who will speak about the crisis of Zionism, opportunities for Palestine. A reminder at the end here, this title came up months ago. So things have changed slightly in the last few weeks, but I'm sure Professor Pape will be able to figure out how to, to manage this. So please welcome Professor Ilan Pape. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Usama, for your very kind uh, introduction. Uh, thank you all for being here today. Thank, I want to thank all the organization that made this uh, event uh, possible. And uh, I really appreciate your taking the time to be with us uh, in this very crucial and painful moment in the history of Israel uh, and Palestine. Uh, before the 7th of October 2023, uh, most of the Israeli uh, Jewish society was looking with some fear and apprehension towards the last weeks of this month. The main discourse in Israel up to the 7th of 
October 2023, was what would be the future of Israel. Uh, weekly demonstrations but by hundreds of thousands of Israelis were uh, part of a movement of protest against the attempt of the government to change the constitutional law in Israel and to uh, create a new political system by which the political powers would have total control over the judicial system and uh, the public domain would be far more controlled by messianic and religious uh, Jewish groups. In one of my articles, I described that particular struggle for the identity of Israel that was the main topic until the, 6th of, uh, until the 7th of October 2023 as a struggle between the state of Judea and the state of Israel. The state of Judea was the state was, that was established uh, in the West Bank by Jewish settlers uh, and uh, which was kind of a combination of messianic Judaism, uh, Zionist uh, fanaticism and racism and uh, it, it became a kind of uh, a power structure that became far more prominent and important uh, in the last uh, few years, especially under the Netanyahu government, and was about to impose its way of life, its perception of life on the rest of Israel, beyond what we call Judea, in a sense, beyond the West Bank or the Jewish space in the West Bank. Against it stood the state of Israel. The state of Israel, if you want, is best epitomized by the city of Tel Aviv, the idea that Israel is pluralistic, uh, democratic, secular, uh, Western, most important than anything else, or European if you want, uh, and is fighting for its life against the state of Judea. And uh, this was, was seemed to be the focus on almost one could call it a civil war, if not, not a real civil war, at least a cold civil war, a cultural war for sure between the Israeli Jews, between themselves. When some people said to both sides of this internal Israeli strife, what about the occupation of the West Bank, for instance? Should this not be part of the discussion of the future of Israel? They, they were told, no, the occupation should not be mentioned by any side. The occupation is irrelevant to the future of Israel, we were told. In fact, anyone who was trying to bring the occupation as a topic to the protests, the weekly protests, against the uh, legal reform or legal revolution, as they like to call it, uh, was asked to leave and, to, uh, and not to appear with the larger group of protesters who were waving the Israeli flag. Definitely, if you brought the Palestinian flag to that demonstration, you would be beaten up and thrown out of the demonstration. If you would mention the fact that maybe the future of Israel is also the conditions and situation of the almost two million Palestinian citizens of Israel who were going through the last year through a process of criminalization, uh, uh, criminal gangs that terrorized, terrorized, still are terrorizing 
the life of Palestinian citizens in Israel, everywhere in Israel, uh, armed gangs, criminal gangs, uh, many of them are former collaborators with Israel in the West Bank and Gaza Strip who were extracted from these territories after the Oslo Accord, highly, uh, very, very uh, uh, well equipped with weapons and totally immunized from any uh, police persecution, uh, uh, prosecution, I'm sorry, or uh, any, any kind of effective anti-criminal action uh, which meant that, uh, as many, many of you may know, Palestinians who live in Israel itself, I'm talking about the Israeli citizens, uh, are fearful to go out at night because of the new reality in their streets uh, and spaces. So that also was not meant to be uh, a topic for discussion in the public domain on the future of Israel. If you wanted to mention East Jerusalem and the ethnic cleansing of the Arab neighborhoods of Jerusalem, again, the demonstrators and their leaders said this is not an important topic, uh, or as Amira Haas, uh, the brave journalist of Aretz, put it, as far as the Israelis were concerned, and this is until the 7th of October 2023, the occupation did not exist, which meant it did not exist as a problem anymore. It is solved. It is solved. There is a PA, there is a, a, a very intensive Jewish presence uh, of settlements in the West Bank. No one has to, to deal with it anymore. In fact, if you look at the last four election campaigns in Israel, uh, and they had quite a few, as you, you may remember, one after the other on a yearly basis, nobody mentioned the Palestine issue, Palestine question, the occupation, call it what, is, what you will. This was not a topic that the Israelis were asked to vote about because it did not exist anymore as a problem. If you, if you mentioned uh, the Gaza Strip, if you were talking about the siege on Gaza, again, people would say, what are you talking about? This is also an issue that doesn't bother anyone anymore. And if you were pointing out to them that actually the daily killing of Palestinians in the last year, what you say in the last two years, the daily killing of Palestinians in the West Bank, the constant and recurrent invasion of uh, Al-Aqsa is something that would not, uh, will go unnoticed and there will be repercussions for these policies. And the fact that the feeble Palestinian Authority is unable to protect the Palestinians from the violence of the settlers and the violence of the Israeli army and the violence of the Israeli border police doesn't mean that there are no Palestinian groups that would try and defend the Palestinians, not only in the Gaza Strip, but also those in, in other parts of historical Palestine. This was said to the Israeli public and policymakers and chief of the Israeli military and secret service again and again. But they said, no, there's no problem. The only problem is the legal reform, whether we accept it or not accept it. And it was very clear why all these other issues were not dealt with. Because what we had in essence in Israel is a struggle between two forms of apartheid. There was the secular 
Israeli apartheid, in which uh, Israeli Jews definitely enjoy life in a democracy, in, plural, in a pluralist democracy, if you want a Western-style democracy. That's the kind of apartheid that they wanted to sustain. And you had the counter version of apartheid, the messianic one, the religious one, uh, the theocratic one. Uh, so the fight was a, a, a domestic Jewish issue of what kind of Jewish life will be in the public domain without any reference to the life of Palestinians, whether these were Palestinians under occupation in the West Bank, under a siege in the Gaza Strip, or under a discriminatory system inside Israel, and not to mention the many millions of Palestinian refugees. All of this was not there. And it all blew up in the face of the Israelis in the morning of the 7th of October. And there is an optical illusion now that because of the shock that definitely uh, Israel underwent on in the, in the morning of Saturday, the 7th of October, that all these cracks in the edifice, in the Zionist edifice, has disappeared. Because uh, the Hamas attack was so brutal, so devastating, that all the internal debates have been forgotten, and everybody is united behind the army and its present uh, uh, plan for invading the Gaza Strip and commencing with the already had commenced, have commenced uh, the genocidal policies uh, on, on the ground. I think it's an optical illusion. I think the, uh, the Israeli uh, internal strife is not going away. It will uh, return. I don't know when, but it will return. But what, what is more important, and this is something we should insist on, I think, as activists, as academics, anyone who in one way or another is related to, to Palestine and the Palestinian struggle, uh, is our insistence that the events of the 7th of October, however we understand them, however we approach them, from a humane point of view, from a strategic point of view, from a moral point of view, however we approach them, we should not fall into the trap that is, seems to uh, quite a lot of good people even are uh, falling into in this country, into decontextualizing and dehistoricizing the events of the 7th of October. And this is something that will not change uh, in the coming weeks. The basic reality on the ground is still the same reality on the ground that was there between, before the 7th of October. The Palestinian people since probably 1929, probably since 1929, are involved in a struggle for liberation. It's an anti-colonialist struggle. It's an anti-settler colonialist struggle. And every anti-colonialist struggle has its ups and lows. Every anti-colonialist struggle has moments of glory and has difficult moments of, of violence. Decolonization is not a pharmaceutical process. 
It's not a sterile process. It's a messy business. And the longer the colonialism and the oppression, the more likely that the outburst would be violent and uh, desperate in many, many ways. And this is so important to remind people of the history of uh, the rebellions of slaves in this country and how they ended, the, rebel the revolts of Native Americans, the rebellions of Algerians against the settlers in Algeria, uh, uh, the massacre of Oran uh, during the fight of the FLN for liberation. This is something which is part of the struggle for liberation. You can sometimes question some of the strategic ideas you may have some uneasy moments, and rightly so, about the way things are being done, but you can never lose your moral compass if you don't decontextualize and dehistoricize the event uh, itself. Um, you seem to be in, in a struggle against uh, a typical coverage, both by media and academia in this country, and in the West in general, and in the global North in general, that has this ability to take an event and start with the event as if it has no history. It, is, it has no, no consequence. I mean, even the stories about the, uh, the kind of uh, uh, party or festival that was attacked on the 7th of November does not mention the fact that this was a festival of love and peace, kilometer and a half from the ghetto of Gaza. People were celebrating love and peace while the uh, people of Gaza, two kilometers from that fence, were under one of the most brutal siege in human history that was going on for more than 15 years, controlled by the Israelis, deciding how many calories are getting into the Gaza Strip, deciding who goes in, who goes out, and keeping two million people in uh, the biggest prison, uh, open prison on earth. All these contexts allow you to navigate, I think, morally uh, uh, without losing that compass. But far more important than the immediate context, and even the context of the siege, and this is what I would like to focus uh, uh, tonight, is the fact that one of the biggest challenges as activists for Palestine or scholars on Palestine who are activists is that we cannot challenge decades of propaganda and fabrication uh, and counter-narrative with sound bites. This is our main problem, I think. We need space. We need time to explain the reality because so many outlets, so many sources of information, so many places where knowledge is produced has portrayed a picture, an analysis of Palestine which is uh, 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 false, false, uh, fabricated, and uh, uh, has been built throughout the years with the help of academia, the media, Hollywood, uh, TV series, and so on. I mean, these, these are media that works on people's minds and emotions, and they created a certain story that you cannot challenge with one soundbite. 
You cannot even challenge it alone by your sense of justice. You can only challenge it if your sense of justice is based on profound knowledge of the history, a profound and, and accurate analysis of the reality by using the right language, because the language that is being used even by liberal so-called progressive forces is a language that immunizes Israel and does not allow the Palestinian uh, anti-colonial struggle to be justified, to be uh, accepted and legitimized. And, uh, you know, in the pantheon of anti-colonialist uh, struggle, which many people would put a lot of heroes from Nelson Mandela to Gandhi and to other important leaders of anti-liberation movement, you will not find one Palestinian. They will always be treated as terrorists, uh, whereas by essence they were an anti-colonialist uh, uh, movement. And that kind of insistence of using the right language, of knowing the history of the place, and having the right uh, uh, analysis is something, as I said, you, you, you need space for doing it. You, you can't sort of come and say, you're wrong and I'm right. And, and this is a huge challenge for all of us, I think, in a moment like uh, these days in America, for instance, where the, there is, seems to be this unconditional support for Israel uh, and hypocritical approach to, to the suffering of Israelis that was never displayed towards the suffering of Palestinians in any given moment in the history uh, of Palestine. The history lessons, so to speak, that is the antidote to dehistoricizing the events of the 7th of uh, uh, October and the events that are unfolding in front of our eyes today and probably in the next few weeks, if not months, the, the the historical context has, I think, two, two levels, two basic uh, uh, pillars on which they should stand, and I think are very important for anyone who is involved in public debates on an individual basis or an institutional basis, on an academic domain or the media domain. It doesn't matter. The, the, same, the same kind of pillars are relevant to all these kinds of struggles. One is never to let go from our insistence of an accurate definition of Zionism. This is so important. You cannot, you should not allow any discussion of what goes on in Israel today or in Palestine today without talking about Zionism. And this is why, and it's not a coincidence, so much effort has been invested by Israel and its supporters in this countries and in other countries to equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, that if you ever mention the word Zionism, you're already uh, in the domain, in the dangerous domain of being regarded as an anti-Semite, and therefore you will be ably be silenced. But that doesn't mean that this is not the only and right way to start the story. The story starts with an ideology which is racist. At its very heart, it's a racist ideology. It belongs to the genealogy of racism, not to the history of liberation movements, which is how it is taught in most American universities, 
not to the history of national movement, as it's being taught in most of the global north, or is talked about or covered by the Western media. No, it belongs to the history of racism, an ideology not in its very origin, but in the way it manifested itself on the land of Palestine. And this racism is part of the settler-colonial nature of the Zionist movement, namely uh, a, a movement which is not exceptional, uh, which you are familiar with in this country as well, of Europeans who were chucked out of Europe and had to find uh, a different place to, to be Europeans in it because they were not accepted as Europeans. And they found countries in which other people lived. And as the late Patrick Wolf said in that encounter, the logic of the elimination of the native was activated the moment these settlers met the indigenous people. And that is true about Palestine as well. Eliminatory policies were the DNA of Zionist uh, uh, encounter with the Palestinians from the very inception of the Zionist movement in the late 19th century. To put it in less academic words, you wanted as much of Palestine as possible with as few Palestinians as possible. There was always the demographic dimension and the geographical dimension, the population dimension and the space dimension. The more space you have, the less you want the indigenous population in it. Eliminatory uh, policies could be genocide, could be ethnic cleansing, apartheid. They take different forms in different places and they take different forms in the same place according to capacity, historical circumstances, and, and condition. But you cannot take out what happened in Gaza from these Israeli and before that Zionist eliminatory policies, from the elimination of the native. An elimination of the native that began first in, the, in Zionist thought, in the drawing of Zionist painters, in the writing of Zionist thinkers, and became a strategy in the 1930s that was first implemented in 1948 in the ethnic cleansing of Palestine that ended with the uh, expulsion of half of the Palestinians and the destruction of half of Palestine's villages. By the way, many of these villages are uh, on, the, on the ruins of these villages. Some of the kibbutzim that were uh, occupied by the Hamas for a few hours uh, were built, these kibbutzim were built on the ruins of uh, these Palestinian villages from 1948, and quite a few of the Palestinians who went into this kibbutzim were a third generation of Palestinian refugees from these very uh, 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 destroyed villages uh, not far uh, from Gaza. This is also part of the story. Not everything that I'm saying here means that I justify everything that was done. No, I don't. But it means that it gives you an historical context without which you are not getting to the source of violence and you're only dealing with the symptoms of the violence. And you need to go to the source of the violence. And the source of the violence is a certain ideology, a certain racist ideology, a Zionist ideology, that at its very basic is the idea of the elimination of the native. As, and as I say, this is not entirely unique for Zionism. There were other European settler colonial movement who definitely were motivated and inspired by the idea of the elimination of uh, the native. So 
if you look very, uh, in a very cursory way on that history, you understand that what is really important uh, for an ideological movement that is motivated by uh, the idea of having as much of the new land as possible with as few of its native people as possible, you understand that what is really important is the historical period in which it was uh, conceived and the historical period in which it enacted its policies of elimination. Now, if you enact these policies of elimination in the 19th century, as had been done in the United States, you're talking about a world that is quite indifferent to colonialism, to racism, and other human rights, collective human rights, uh, or civil rights. But if you say to yourself, wait a minute, this has been done after the Second World War. It was actually done in the year of the Declaration of Human Rights that the Global North was so proud of as saying to the world after the Second World War, we now have moral foundation that would make sure that the massive killing of people, as we've seen in the Second World War, that racism that we've seen in so many places would be eradicated because there is a moral consensus. When you think in the same year, South Africa issued the apartheid law and Israel uh, 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 exercised the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, you begin to understand the message that both the apartheid regime in South Africa received and more importantly, the Zionist uh, state received in 1948 from the international community. Yes, we are proudly announcing the Declaration of Human Rights, but we are also telling you it does not apply to you. It does not apply to you. The message from the world was that the ethnic cleansing of Palestine is acceptable mainly for the reason, I mean, this was the propaganda, I don't think it was the real reason, but it was the kind of saying, in the words of one American intellectual, it was tolerating a small injustice to correct a much bigger injustice. Namely, Palestinians had to compensate the Jews for a thousand years of European and Christian anti-Semitism. Um, and, and, and the deal was very clear, and this is why Israel was the first state to recognize a new Germany. Uh, people uh, in Europe and in the West were very hesitant whether to accept West Germany as a member of the civilized nations so many years, so few years after the Nazi regime. But the moment they got a green light from Israel that pretended, and not rightly so, to represent both the survivors of the Holocaust and the victims of the Holocaust. As the ultimate representative of the Holocaust, they said, we will declare a new Germany, and in return, we want non-interference from the West in what we are doing in Palestine. Uh, you would have expected Israel at least to be the third country that recognizes a new Germany, not the first one. But uh, it was very important for them to have this deal. Also, it also meant that the new Germany provided Israel with a huge financial assistance that helped to build the modern Israeli army already in the early 1950s. Now, when the message from the world was that ethnic cleansing is, in the case of 
the state of Israel an acceptable method of national security strategy, it's not surprising that the ethnic cleansing continue. Israel expelled 36 villages between 1948 and 1967 inside Israel. Israel expelled 300,000 Palestinians from the West Bank and the Gaza Strip during the June 67 war. Israel expelled from 1967 until today almost 700,000 Palestinians from the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And as we are talking, Israel is continuing the ethnic cleansing in places such as Masafi Yata, the South Hebron Mountains, the Greater Jerusalem area, and other parts of Palestine. Ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian became the DNA of Israeli policy towards the Palestinians, and it employs hundreds of thousands of people to exercise it, because these are not massive ethnic cleansings like in 1948. These are incremental ethnic cleansing. Sometimes it's the expulsion of one person, of one family. Sometimes it's not even an expulsion. Sometimes it's a closure of a village or enclaving the Gaza Strip. It's also a form of ethnic cleansing because if you create the Gaza ghetto, you don't have demographically to calculate the, these two million Palestinians in the demographic balance between Arabs and Jews because these Palestinians have no say in the future of historical Palestine. This is all, this is the, the one historical pillar that uh, is necessary for anyone telling us uh, or using this uh, vile language that people are now using against the Palestinians when people tell us that if we wave the Palestinian flag, we are supporting terrorism. Uh, if people compare what happened on the 7th of October uh, in the morning to the Holocaust, and by that totally abusing the Holocaust the memory, either they don't understand or they don't know what they are doing, but even if they go with it and take the high moral ground, it's so important to locate this particular event into the wider distant history of modern Palestine and the particular history of the siege on Gaza that began in 2007. The inhuman siege of two million people in, in uh, one of the longest, probably the longest siege ever on such a large number of people in terms of food, water, freedom of movement uh, and other basic uh, uh, necessities of life that led already the United Nations in 2020 to, to think that life in the Gaza Strip is unsustainable for human beings. Already three years ago, they thought it was, we already crossed the red line in Gaza. So don't be surprised if when people go out of there, there is outrage, there is revenge, there is violence. Of course there is. There was, same happened with the rebellions of slaves, of uh, indigenous Native Americans, of colonized people in, from India through North Africa. Uh, Anti-colonialist struggle, as I said before, is not a work of Quakers and pacifists. It's uh, a very, uh, can be very violent and can be very peaceful. And much of it depends on how much the colonizer, the ethnic cleanser, is willing to take in the fact that the people who are, that they are colonized or oppressed are not going to disappear and are not going to give up their struggle. The sooner you understand it, the more likely you will have 
a much peaceful transformation from a colonialist reality to post-colonialist reality. If you refuse to understand it, it will hit you in the face again and again. And the 7th of October is not the last uh, uh, moment of such uh, uh, an event. But there is also another historical context that I would like to bring to your attention. And this is so important because in all this discourse that accompanied the coverage in the media and by politicians in this country and in the West in general, it was very easy to see how people slip over to generalization about the Palestinians, kind of having these adjectives about the Palestinians, the general characteristic of Palestinians. We heard it before after 9-11 about Muslims in general. We heard it during the colonialist period against any people who who dared to, to challenge the empires. There's nothing new in it. But it is important to remind people that Zionism was a disastrous, a disaster that uh, destroyed a Palestine that would have been different without Zionism. This is so important to remind people how Palestine was before 1948. Palestine, where Muslim, Christians, and Jews coexisted, when coexistence did not, was not a fabricated idea of live and let live, but was a genuine way of living together. One should not idealize it. Of course, it had its tension. It has its moment of crisis. But it was a mosaic of life that, uh, uh, particularly in Palestine, was enabled people to also enjoy what the, the land had to offer. And the land had to offer something you won't find today in Palestine. The land offered an affluence of water, for instance. People, only people who remember Palestine before 48 know that every Palestinian village has a, had a stream of fresh water. Uh, you know, this Zionist uh, uh, fable that the president of the EU just recently repeated by saying that Zionism bloomed the desert. It's such a fabrication of history. Zionism turned a blooming country into a desert in many places. That is something to, but you could only do it if you reconstruct with the help of historians, the kind of Palestine that was there before 1948, both in terms of humanity and human relationship, and also in ecological terms. The whole connection between Palestinian and herbs, for instance, a nature that Zionism destroyed was part of the quality of life that Palestinian had, uh, or as uh, the late Emil Habibi put it when he lived in uh, Abbas Street in Haifa, he said, I never knew who was a Christian or a Muslim in my street before 1948. And I think this, was this is something that is not nostalgia for the sake of nostalgia. This is an alternative history, if you want, in the sense of telling you that there is, there was a possibility for a different Palestine. And to that history, we should also include the fact that the Palestinian national movement, the Palestinian anti-colonialist national movement, from the moment Zionism set foot in Palestine, in historical Palestine, was loyal to two principles, and this is so well documented, 
that you don't have to work very hard to find it. There were two principles that the Palestinians were loyal to. In particular, they said it to the Americans because the Americans brought this principle through President Woodrow Wilson to the Arab world, especially to the Mashraf, the Eastern Mediterranean, in 1919. And then the United Nations brought it, kind of repeated these principles. One principle was the right of self-determination for people. The Palestinians said, we also deserve right for self-determination, like the Iraqis, like the Lebanese, like the Egyptians. The second principle was democracy. You know, if you are taking us out of Ottoman rule, under which we were for 400 years, and you want us to decide our post-Ottoman future, what will be our future? What will be the nature of our regime, of our state, of our political existence? We want democratically, by the vote of majority, to decide whether we want to be part of greater Syria, whether we want to be an independent Arab Palestine, maybe we want to be in a federated Arab, pan-Arab Republic, but it's up to us. And every American delegation that went from 1918 until 1948, every international delegation, whether it was Anglo-American, whether it was uh, uh, any other organization, the reply to the Palestinians was, that while the principle of democracy and self-determination is cherished by the Western world and they see it as the right pillars on which to build the new post-Ottoman Arab world, it cannot apply to Palestine. Because Palestine was promised by the British Empire to become a Jewish state. And because the Jews are such a tiny minority, the principle of self-determination cannot be applied to the Palestinians, and of course the principle of majority or democratic election is out of the question for uh, the Palestinians. This is also important in the context of our historical uh, journey into the past in order to contextualize the kind of oppression, the kind of, uh, uh, kind of history or genealogy uh, of racism that was endorsed and supported by the West when it came uh, uh, to Palestine. Now, this other pillar is not just important in order to remind us what Zionism did or what Palestine could have been. This is the foundation on which we will build a post-liberated Palestine, a post-colonial Palestine. This is the foundation. And think about the elements of this past and how they relate to a different reality from the one we had. And don't let the current attack on Gaza Strip, the genocidal policies by Israel, let you shy away from continuing to think about the liberation of Palestine and how the liberated Palestine would look like. And talk to the Palestinians who are thinking about, not just about the tactical move tomorrow, but who are visualizing that's what I did with my book with Ramzi Barut. How we talked to 40 Palestinian thinkers and asked them, how do you visualize a liberated Palestine? And if you look at the way that the vision, their vision for liberation, and the vision of liberation, not just how to struggle for liberation, but what will the liberation bring with it? It's all the elements you had in Palestine before 1948 a society that does not discriminate on the basis of religion or sect, 
or cultural identity. A society that respects democracy. A society that respects the principles on live and left live. And more importantly, maybe than anything else, a society that brings back Palestine into the Arab world, into the Muslim world, organically into the place from which it was extracted by force. Now, being part of the Arab world is not an easy scenario for many people, and rightly so. But you cannot be uh, a part of the solution or the more positive scenarios for the Arab world if you're not part of the problems of the Arab world. You cannot have a discussion of human rights in Iran or civil rights in Egypt if you don't include the civil rights and human rights of the Palestinians. There is no point for these discussions because you will always get to the exceptionalism of the Palestinian uh, uh, lack of these rights and you will always find yourself in an inferior position if you want from the outside to help the, the Arab world to deal with these issues of human rights and civil rights. And it's only when Palestine, the future Palestine, would be part of the Arab world that it would be part of its problems, but it will be also part of its uh, uh, solution. I will end by saying, just to repeat the main point which I really want to make uh, uh, tonight. There is always a, 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 an illusion with a dramatic, and it, one cannot underestimate the drama that we are seeing, the human catastrophe. And we are just, unfortunately, I think that we're only seeing the beginning of the human catastrophe that Israel is going to impose, not only on the Gaza Strip, unfortunately, also on the West Bank. They're going to use this as a pretext to change their policies in the West Bank as well. Of course, the most urgent thing is to try and stop it by all the means that are at our, our disposal in this country to put pressure for an international intervention that put a stop to these genocidal policies that, as I say, I'm very afraid would be extended to the West Bank uh, as well. But part of what we always have to do as well is to strategize for the future, because the basic issues will be here also after uh, the, this particular moment in time would uh, end in one way or, or another. And it is this kind of discussion that would ensure, to my mind, that we're not losing our moral compass. We are not deterred by the way people are trying to say to us, surely after what happened on the 7th of October, you cannot keep your old positions on morality. And we should remind people that nobody questioned the right of Algeria to be free, the right of Kenya to be free, the right of India to be free from colonialism, despite any incidents that were there in the struggle for liberation or whatever level of violence there was there or whatever kind, whatever form the clash between the anti-colonialist forces took place with the colonialist forces. We never question the basic right for liberation and independence and neither should we do this in the, in the case uh, of Palestine. Uh, if you want to see a peaceful Palestine, you have to talk first and foremost about a free Palestine. Thank you.
Ilan, thank you for that uh, extraordinary lecture and a, a demonstration again of the importance of history. So two historians here, uh, many from the history department here, uh, students and faculty, I hope. Uh, um, um, but in any case, um, on the one hand, Ilan, by, by looking at history and by insisting on an honest interpretation and rendition of the past, especially of Palestine, colonial Zionism, the opportunities, the history of Palestine before Zionism, the ecumenical nature of Palestine, the pluralism of Palestine, it gives us, as you said, a, a, um, a vision for the future. But if I could ask some questions, Ilan, just to continue this, this kind of thing. Um, the first That's okay. All right. So the first question, Ilan, is, you know, you mentioned the whole genealogy of anti-colonial movements, and we should look to them and the experience of them, and, and on the one hand, have nuance in terms of looking at what's going on today, um, and not shy away from the fact that there is extraordinary violence, even on the part of, of, of anti-colonial liberation movements. But how, what, what about the fact that here, and you mentioned Joe Biden, or you alluded to Joe Biden, you alluded to the Holocaust, um, the, the, you said the abuse of, of, of the memory of the Holocaust. So when Joe Biden says that the Hamas attack, the, the direct quotation is, is as consequential as the Holocaust, and given the fact that there is so much identification with Israel in a way that there was never with South Africa, never with Algeria or French Algeria, maybe in the, in, the, in the United States, never with any of these other colonial movements, how do you envision using the anti-colonial past to help guide us in the future. Uh, is this working? Yeah. You hear me? Okay. Yeah, thank you. You know, when you, you were talking with Sama, I was thinking about one particular uh, decade in history, the 1970s, um, when uh, the, Af member, the, in the, the African member states in the United Nations who were just going out of their anti-colonialist liberation struggle, were looking at Palestine as an open wound of colonization that has to be healed, which led to their initiative. People think it was the Arab initiative. It was, it was an African initiative to equate Zionism with racism in the famous uh, United Nations resolution in 1975. And, um, if you look, and, and, and many of the documents for that period are now open, and I owe it to some of my people who are working on this. Um, the American pressure on the African delegations that uh, uh, was continued for about 15 years to resign, to retract that resolution, using intimidation, using bribery, using whatever uh, was, was, was able, they had in their hands is, is a very important uh, chapter in the history because it shows you that um, there is still a basic instinct 
in the global south to view Palestine as a colonized space, to view the Palestinian resistance as an anti-colonialist movement, and to lend it solidarity and help. But political circumstances, and especially economic circumstances, kind of do not allow for that sentiment, maybe even in the Arab world, to, to, to come out. In other words, I think what we should look for, because the Palestinians by themselves will not be able to do this, we should look for that kind of solidarity that was there, as you know, it was there in the 70s, from Latin America to Southeast Asia. There was this solidarity with the first Nigeria and then Palestine, are the two last bastion of colonialism that has to be liberated. We have to see whether there's a way of creating this intersectionality, this transnational solidarity again. This time we learned, and we learned it uh, from, from groups here in the United States, that it is beyond the question, because we're not in the age anymore of uh, national liberation struggle in many places. We are much more in the age of struggle of minorities, of cultural groups, uh, uh, of African Americans, of Native Americans, First Nations, uh, and so on, that this is the new international solidarity movement on which I think you can carry the Palestinian anti-colonial movement, and it already, at least, you have manifestation for the way the knowledge production is being decolonized in some places. I mean, the fact that you can read about Palestine in uh, academic journals on indigenous studies, the fact that journals that deal with settler colonialism have special issues on Palestine. It's not easy to have, I talked to your students this uh, afternoon, this lunchtime, and I said to them, it's very difficult to see Palestine being taught within a general course on colonialism and anti-colonialism and racism and genocide. Uh, so there's a long way to be done, and of course it has to go out of the ivory towers to the public domain and public discourse. But I, I do think it, it, it is possible because it, it happened there, because there must be a basic instinct. Uh, and see what's happening in the Arab world today. The whole uh, so-called Abraham Accord is, a, is seemingly much more volatile and precarious than it was before the 7th of October. And already then, it was not on solid, on solid ground that the societies were concerned. So I, I think that there is this, this uh, uh, ability to look at these historical moments and remember that you know uh, there was there were moments of international national solidarity that could be revived, of course, adapted to the new reality of the 21st century. Okay, but, and so Elon, so thank you for that, but honestly, we've been living here, as, as you have, you just came, you spent a week in the U.S., but for those of us who are sort of uh, teaching and in other arenas advocating for justice in Palestine, the last two weeks have not only been a shock and a horror to, to, to watch what's happening in Gaza and to Gaza and to the Palestinians, but the reaction in the West, across the board, is more intense, more, more dehumanizing, than I can remember, and I've been teaching for 25 years. So how, how do you reconcile this, what you're talking about, solidarity and intersectionality with the fact that it seems to be, we seem to be going backwards in some sense. Can you, can you give me yeah, some? Yeah, I, I think I was trying to make two points here. Yeah. One point is that to separate our strategic thinking from our tactical reaction. Yes, there is a barrage 
of silencing, suppressing freedom of speech, uh, using the events of Saturday as a pretext. And, uh, and having a license now to call the Palestinians Nazis and to compare the 7th of October to, to the Holocaust, this will pass. This will pass because the Israeli policies on the ground, it's, it's cynical what I'm saying now, and it's terrible what I'm saying now, but you can count on the Israelis that the uh, images of the 7th of October would be replaced, or at least would to these images, you will have the images. We've already seen that beginning. And it, it, even people like Biden would not be able to sustain for too long this one-sided idea that there was only uh, victimization and violence on one side. Unfortunately, I, I, I count on, on the Israelis for this. I wish I wouldn't see it, but that's one possibility. So, so one thing is this tactical, how do you deal with the tactical barrage? Uh, as one friend of mine used to say, you are now bombard bombarded from the air and you're in the bunker. Maybe it's not a good time to get out of the bunker because you might be killed. But the bombardment will pass, the, the initial bombardment will pass. And then you will have a chance. I don't think that the last two weeks are indicative uh, of a campaign that can be sustained for that long. Uh, after all, even after 9-11, there was, it took time. It took time for the academics and the Middle East Studies Association and other, to go back a little bit to the criticism and, 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 and even on the case of Israel, to go back to boycotting the Israeli academia and so on. So that's one point, but no, no less important, I think. No less important is, is of course, to use uh, all the means you have at your disposal, especially the legal means, to, uh, to deal with this bully. It's, it's an act of bullying. Now, of course, when the bully is not a person, when the bully is the university management, or the bully is the administration, uh, uh, it's very difficult to face it. But still, the, the, the basic, I don't know, that's at least what I'm saying to my children, uh, the basic law when you're facing a bully is not to be afraid of and not to be intimidated by them. And, and, uh, and, tell them, and tell them, no, we don't accept it. We don't accept it. We don't accept it the way we're not allowed to wave the Palestinian flag. For us, this is the flag of injustice, the struggle against injustice. For us, this is the flag of justice. No, we are not shying for saying that we defend the right of the people of Gaza to defend themselves. You know, all these things, if you are, if they are solid in your moral perception of life, this kind of bullying, I think, can be uh, attended. Of course, if you are in a vulnerable academic position, you should be more careful in the way you're doing it. But non, not all of us are in vulnerable positions. Some of us have more solid positions in life, and we should use them in order to help the other more vulnerable, whether they're students or academics without tenure and so on, to make sure that the management knows uh, your position. Because you have to remember, university are always two things. University is a business with management, but it's also a community of scholars. And as a community of scholars, uh, I'm sure we can demand a certain behavior that maybe we cannot expect from the management. But it's a form, far more complex institution than just the management. Uh, people here are not just workers in a business. It, it, it's a far more complex relationship, and we should use that relationship to stand 
uh, uh, and, and be loyal to our principles. Thank you. Uh, that's fantastic. So, and actually, Elon, I should say that now after the events, there, there are two petitions that are, or statements that have been circulating on this campus. One that, that let's just say, dehistoricizes, use the word dehistoricizes and decontextualizes the Palestinians completely, obliterates their history, and, uh, and, and does not call for an end to violence. Um, and uh, the other one, um, which in, in honestly, I played a, a small part, uh, just, for, just for honest disclosure, but what's interesting is that many assistant professors, lecturers, signed the statement, because in the end, if one doesn't stand up, it doesn't matter how tenured you are, you will not, if you don't stand up as an assistant, you won't stand up as a full absolutely. absolutely, absolutely. I just um, want to tell you that... Yeah, just uh, to say, I mean, it's... Uh, we were, in my, uh, the university asked the department to which I belong, the Institute for Arab and Islamic Studies, not to publish an official uh, position on Palestine by the Institute. So what we did, we said, okay, only, but they said you can individually sign. So individually, every member of the institute signed the individual society. So in a way, it was the institutional position okay. without having the institutional position. Yep. All right. Well, there's some hope. So the couple of questions, that, and there are many, many different questions. One is one repeating, repeated, or question that's repeated several times or asked several times. What is, um, you spoke a lot about the, the Palestinians, of course, of Gazi, who are being you know, bombarded and persecuted now the West Bank with the ethnic cleansing that you talked about. What about the Palestinians inside of Israel? Are you not afraid that the situation um, now with this kind of this government and the policies and the unleashing of this kind of genocidal attitudes towards Palestinians is going to remake the demographics? And so the question then is the people inside, the Palestinians inside, but also a fear of another Nakba. First of all, we have to say that even before the events of Saturday, the 7th of October, uh, the situation among the Palestinians in Israel was unbearable. Uh, every day, someone was murdered or killed. Uh, people in most of the Palestinian villages and towns in Israel do not go out in the evening because they are afraid of the terror of the uh, uh, um, criminal gangs. Uh, the um, ministers who are responsible for uh, the life and the well-being of the Palestinians inside Israel are the most fanatic, messianic uh, uh, Zionists. So their situation was already precarious and already led to immigration, which was the main purpose, I think, of these policies. So yes, I think the events would make this even more uh, dangerous. And that's why I think this is, this is so important to uh, explain the difference between a reaction to a certain action that happened on the 7th of October and to the way Israel is exploiting the events of 7th of October to implement in a far more ruthless and brutal way an ideology and a vision they already had before and regardless of what happened on the 7th of October. Uh, this is not new. I mean, Israel always did it from 1948 until today, sometimes without pretext and sometimes using as a pretext something that seemed to be a reaction or a retaliation or even revenge, but actually is a far more sober implementation of the kind of vision 
that it has as a settler colonial movement of a, of a de-Palestinized uh, Palestine. So another question here, Ilan, several questions are talking about Palestinian leadership. So given the fact that the PA has collaborated and has been collaborating with the Israelis and the United States for decades to suppress the Palestinians, especially in the West Bank, how do you envision, I mean, so obviously you're not, you know, it's not, it's not your role as such, but you're, the, the, so where do you see anything changing structurally given the fragmentation of the Palestinians um, and given the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem are all separated and of course the Palestinians outside? As you say, it's very difficult to, to, to predict, but my sense is, from what I read, and not because I'm privy to Israeli strategic thinking, uh, but my sense is, and also judging by what I hear from the public statements by Israeli generals and Israeli politicians, that they are preparing the Israeli uh, society for a long, long operation in Gaza. So contrary to what people think, they are not going to invade in one day the Gaza Strip. They're going to invade it slice by slice and make it a very long uh, reoccupation of the Gaza Strip. Uh, by the way, totally, with total disregard for the 200 Israelis who are in the hands of, uh, of the Hamas and the Islamic Jihad. That's by the sign. Now, because it would be incremental to my mind, and because it would be long, the Israelis are taking a risk here, I think, that uh, the PA that anyway, as you say, is volatile and is under severe criticism from not protecting the people of the West Bank from the assaults of the settlers, from the attacks of the army, the border police. I'm not sure that their own forces, I'm not sure that their own forces, who are also Palestinians, uh, would stand by would not begin to take part, even if this is not what their political leadership asked them to do. This is probably, and I say it very carefully because I don't want to predict, but it's probably the face of the third intifada. It's very difficult to, to, to say what would be the face of the third uprising in the West Bank, but you have a feeling that this is where you would look at. The, the, not just the collapse of the PA, but the way some structures of the PA would be part of the rebellion. Uh, so I think that uh, this is something that you have to remember a lot of people in the West Bank who do not support the Hamas, and you can see it if, if you watch Palestinian television or you, or you listen to Palestinian radio, I don't know if you did, in the last, if you listen to the Palestinian radio from Ramallah in the last 10 days, as I have, it's one very interesting message which I think is not talked about. Two, two important messages, which I think are important to, to remind us. First of all, the importance of the issue of political prisoners for Palestinians. This is the most consensual issue for the Palestinians. It doesn't matter whether you are Hamas, Fatah, the left, a communist, secular, religious, Christian or Muslim. The political prisoner issue is the most burning issue for all the Palestinians. And, there's no, and the PA is doing nothing about it. Let's, let's remind ourselves, since 1967, one million Palestinians spent time as political prisoners in Israeli jails. One million spent time. So this is the most important issue. The PA radio of Ramallah 
devotes three hours every day to conversation with the families of the prisoners. So when the Hamas goes out and says, part, and they said it very clearly, and by the way, they warned Israel before Saturday. They said, we will not sit idle as long as the political prisoners are not going to be released. And one of the things, it was not a big secret. You didn't need the brilliant Israeli intelligence for that. The Hamas said, we will do all we can to uh, uh, abduct Israeli soldiers and citizens so that we have something to deal with in order to deal with the most important issue for our society, which are the political prisoners. So that's one point. The second point is the vulnerability of the Palestinians in the West Bank. We, we keep forgetting it because usually Israelis' policies of genocide and ethnic cleansing are incremental. They're not massive. They don't happen in one day. And every day, young people, sometimes children, were killed in the last two years in the West Bank. The PA was defenseless. The only group, at least rhetoric, first of all, rhetorically, saying we will eventually defend these people was the Hamas. And actually, the people who, like the, uh, you know, the, uh, the small groups in the Jenin refugee camp and in the Kasbah of Nablus, that were uh, trying with meager uh, uh, military uh, means to defend Palestinians, were saying, you know, we, we are, yes, we are inspired by, by the Hamas because they are the ones who, who fight back, who are not sitting idle. This is also part of the context, which I think is very important to, to take into account. Okay, so I don't know how much more time we have, but uh, let me just ask a couple of questions. One is, um, to, I'm going to combine two questions. Uh, some people, I mean, many are asking, how do they, how do they refute the constant conflation when they're struggling or fighting for justice in Palestine with anti-Semitism? And then, what do you say to Jews, like Jewish activists, especially anti-Zionist Jewish activists, who are accused of self-hate or betrayal? These yeah. are some of the questions that we're getting. Yeah, yeah. Very So I'm sure you've come up with these questions many times. <laughs> yeah, you've no, heard these but, questions many yeah, times. Yeah, but but they are important. Um, for the first question, I, I think that um, in accusations like these and allegations like this, that when you support the Palestinians or when you criticize Zionism as racism, you are an anti-Semite, it's very important to control the conversation. Rather than be defensive, is telling people, and I'm serious about it, and, and I do it as much as I can, by telling them, you're probably, I can do it in a polite way and not in an impolite way. In a polite way, I say, you probably don't know enough about the history of Zionism and Judaism. In an impolite way, I say, you're an imbecile who doesn't know anything about the history. So it depends. And it, this is when I said, sound bites don't work here. Because really, you have to explain the difference between faith an ideology. It's amazing when, when it comes to the Islamic State, people are very intelligent. They say, oh yes, this is ideology and this is religion. When it comes to uh, uh, white supremacy in the United States, people say, of course, this is not Christianity, this is an ideology that uses Christianity. Somehow, when it comes to supremacist, racist, Jewish ideology, it means that if you say that, then you're anti-Semite. You're not an anti-Christian when you are against the Aryan nation, and you're not anti-Islamic if you don't like the Islamic State. And the same is true about Zionism. So that, that's one point I would say. And 
by, I mean by controlling the conversation, by saying, let, let me explain to you the difference between religion and ideology, and what happens when ideology uses religion for its political uh, uh, ambition. So I think that's very important to, to make sure that you know uh, that history, even in a cursory way, so you can easily shift the conversation to the lack of knowledge of those who accuse you. As for uh, self-hating, I, I, I don't know, I, maybe it's, it's my, my, my idiosyncratic nature. I, it always amuses me, I must say. It amuses me. I, I remember the first time I heard it really strong was in Cleveland, Ohio. I was talking there in the club, I don't remember the name of the club, and half of the, half of the audience were uh, Zionist uh, Jews and Christians, and half were Palestinians, who for some reason were all physicians and doctors. And most of the Palestinians in Cleveland are doctors, I don't know why, but they're all doctors. And uh, the, the rabbi of Cleveland said, I don't know how you live with yourself as a self-hating Jew. And I said, wait a minute, you know, I have many Palestinian doctors' friends here, and I went to all their clinics, and I'm afraid to tell you that they told me that this disease is incurable. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I, probably the self-hate, there's no pill against it, there's no vaccination against it. So I said to him, you're right, you're right, I, I would live with this. Some people live with chronic disease and, and make it. So yeah, I, I think this, this whole idea is so absurd. Uh, you should ridicule it rather than seriously tackle it. So, thank you, Ilan. So, there, there are several questions about Hamas, as you can imagine. And um, among the questions um, uh, about Hamas is given what you've said about the Western world, the post-World War II sort of construction of Western morality, which on the one hand proclaims all these liberal values, on the other hand, of course, either doesn't apply them or, or actually just actually goes um, into extreme violence and justifies it, as we see now with, with, with Gaza. So when Islamist movements like Hamas or Hezbollah or other movements, or Iran for that matter, the Iranian revolutionary government, when they carry out and they say, look, there's no point putting their, our faith in the West or in these so-called universal values of the West because they've never once been used to, uh, or have never been implemented properly. They've always been sort of ignored. So how, how, how do you, and, and given the fact that Hamas and Hezbollah and others are actually putting, they're, you know, they're the ones doing the fighting. They're the ones, how do you, how do you sort of, um, how do you deal with that? Because they, they don't actually offer necessarily the universal secular vision of a state that you, you see as a future. How do you square that contradiction? Yeah. or deal with that conflict. Absolutely. I think it's an important question. It's very clear that the way Western imperialism, and I include in this Zionism, introduce the so-called universal values of human rights and civil rights to places such as the Arab world were manipulative, were uh, discriminatory, uh, were motivated sometimes by capitalist interest and imperialist interest, and uh, almost the ultimate example for this kind of introduction was trying to bomb Iraq into democracy. And, and that, that definitely 
you understand why a lot of people in the Arab world would say democracy is overrated. Because democracy for us is imperialism, is occupation, is colonialism, and not surprising in the moments where secular westerners, westernized ideologies fail to deliver the goods, people go somewhere else. There's no, that's not surprising. It's very human to do that. That doesn't mean that the Arab world, by the way, for that matter, the world at large, has resolved the kind of dialectical relations secular people will have to have with religious people. It doesn't mean that we are, as a human society, not just in the Arab world, have found the universal moral foundation uh, uh, to, to such an extent that we know exactly who has the high moral ground and who doesn't. I'm not a moral relativist. I don't mean by that that every morality is fine. I'm not a postmodernist. And so I'm just saying that societies, uh, unlike the Western idea of solution, uh, there is a non-Western idea of solution. Uh, in Islam, for instance, even the pre-Islamic societies, people were looking for consensus rather than a majority vote. Uh, and consensus, is, as you, and you wrote about it also in your book, sometimes you live and let live without solving all the differences in the way you perceive the world in moral terms uh, and, and in ideological terms. Even It's the kind of live and let live dialogical, not dialectical, dialogical reality in which you can live. Now, I, I do think that people, and we know, we know the Arab world, we know the societies very well and intimately. They are with, they, there were long periods in history where they were able to do this. And it was usually external intervention that turned the idea of a sectarian society into something negative rather than a mosaic of people with different collective identities, and, and, uh, and the same is true about Palestine. In other words, what I'm trying to say here, that I don't think the Hamas and Hezbollah necessarily represent the vision of the future of the, of the Arab world or Palestine, even in the way that they visualize it. What, 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 what they are getting from the people is their resilience and is their courage and, and resistance. I don't think that people are blind to. I don't think people are blind to their part of their theocratic envision of the future. I don't think people who uh, respect the position, let's say, of Syria or Iran, in uh, where, where the old Arab world was queuing in, uh, you know, wanting to normalize relations with Israel, that people uh, did not feel, you know, on the one hand, said. Uh, this is a, a courageous position to be in. It didn't mean that they were blind to the violation of human rights, either in Syria or in Iran. As human beings, we can juggle both balls. You know, we, we can juggle we can juggle these moral moral questions in a more complex way. We we can say exactly what we admire, and we can say exactly what we don't accept, and we can build together a mechanism by which to have this dialogue. And this dialogue between modernity and tradition, religion, secularism, is not just an issue of the Arab world. It's the issue of Europe. It's the issue of the United States. We, we kind of, you know, we, we sort of mes were mesmerized by this Western world, this kind of democratic world, uh, 
and, and, and then you sort of forget about the fact that many more people are executed in the United States than anywhere in the world. This is not talked about. Uh, that the American electoral system is one of the most antiquated, non-democratic uh, election that bring, uh, yeah, that can bring someone like Trump to the highest position in the country. Uh, all these things need to be reopened. Reopened. Okay. But there's, but there's still this question that there seems to be two different tracks of resistance. And this is from some of the questions coming out here. One is. We just, you just referred to Hamas and Hezbollah and the Islamist resistance. Um, you know, irrespective of what people think of them, good or bad, but they're the ones who are actually, as you said, they're confronting the normalization uh, process. And that's a very specific discourse that they apply. They, they don't sort of pretend, they don't address like Western sort of liberal values because they've seen the hypocrisy there. They do their own thing. And you said there's a theocratic element, there's a religious element, there's all these things. How do you reconcile that reality there with the fact that here, where students are, are, are advocating and faculty and staff, yourself today in your lecture, are advocating for sort of, you know, civil, you know, civil secular, uh, you know, justice. Yeah. That's how, these are two separate tracks. How do you see them, do you see them as contradictions or do you see them as, as eventually sort of converging at some point? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's a good it's a good question because I I think what what you are doing if you look if you look at the history of successful anti-colonialist struggles, not just anti-colonialist struggles in history against oppression by powerful political structures, they were always achieved by a coalition between forces that did not agree about everything that that had different uh, stance on moral issues, ideological issues, maybe even vision. Uh, you also have the opposite examples. Think about Weimar Germany, that the Social Democrats and the Communists refused to collaborate in bringing down Nazism because they felt that they don't see the future exactly the same, which really allowed uh, the, the Nazi forces to, to come to power in Germany. Uh, this is where I think the, they converge. It is now the alliance of the people who work together in order to prevent the elimination of the Palestinian people. You are not, you are not going to be, uh, to do fine-tuning. If, if, if I'm right, and we are in an existential struggle, to prevent the genocide of the Palestinian people, then I don't have the luxury of getting into arguments about what would happen in Palestine once we succeed to stop the genocide. Yes, I will have arguments. Of course I will. I will have arguments. Uh, uh, and I know how it works differently, I mean, even from my own experience. When we demonstrated against the uh, apartheid wall, in Bilain, we we were there all together: Hamas people, Jihad people, Fatah, anti-Zionist Jews. I have a feeling that if I had been a member, uh, uh, someone who lives in Gaza, and maybe not a Muslim, I may may, may not feel that kind of affinity. It's possible. So so I'm not I'm blind to these complexities. I'm just saying that this is 
this is exactly a, a way, it, it all depends on how you define the moment in which you are in. That doesn't mean you are blind to all these issues that you're saying. So I think they do converge. But again, I, I say it converges into a reality that is going to be very difficult. I mean, to build, imagine, to build post-colonial Palestine, which even the Hamas people would have to recognize, would include millions of Jews. However, people in the Jihad, Islamic Jihad, or in Tehran, <laughs> or in Hamas think about post-liberated Palestine, it will have millions of Jews in it. There's no way a post-liberated Palestine will not have millions of Jews in it. So you have to take that into account, and you'll have to think about it. But you don't have to think about it today. You really don't have to think about it today. And, and I, but they will have to think about it. They will have to think about it, you know. Uh, it, it's like those Palestinian friends who believe in one state and want to kill all the Jews. And he says, so, one, so we don't need a one state, just kill the Jews, and we don't need a one state. Uh, I, I think that these, these things are there, and, and uh, if you are on the ground as I am, uh, you know that most people share my view. Most people share my view. What they say outside for political reasons, for public purposes, is different because there are other pressures. I think the vast majority of the Palestinians, and definitely all the anti-Zionist Jews who are in solidarity with them, have this deep realization and deep differentiation between the struggle for liberation and the question, what do you build after the liberation? So we're almost out of time. And the last question is from students here who are asking you, given the, the, the huge amount of pressure they're under, the, the doxing, the, 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 uh, the intimidation, the bullying, and, and everything that's going on on this campus and on other campuses across this country, um, what advice do you give them? How, how can they keep struggling for what is actually basic decency in the face of constant defamation. Yeah. And that's so, the last question. There's a hundred thousand questions. I can't yeah, well, I'll give them to you. You can read them tonight. Okay. Yeah, I, can't, I can't even answer all of them for sure, so it's good. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think first of all, you know, sort of basic rules that only come out of experience in old age rather than particular wisdom. Uh, learning it the hard way, I mean. One thing is never be alone in these struggles. Just make sure that you are part of the bigger... If you feel that you are the only one or you only have a small group, don't do anything. Really, don't do anything. Wait until you find the wider coalition. Uh, that's one thing. The second thing is you have to be tactical. You have to be tactical. And uh, as I said, if, if, if you are under the barrage in the bunker, you may not take your head out immediately. You can wait. I, I, I'm really serious. I, I really believe that we are under the misimpression. Is there such a word in English? I just added a new word to the English dictionary. If you are under the misimpression, you know what I mean. Anyway. If you are under the misimpression that the bullying that you see now and this kind of knee-jerk reaction what happened on Saturday is something that would be with you for a longer time, I think you understand. For all kinds of reasons, some of them I try to elaborate tonight. Uh, this is going, if not, maybe it's not going to wane, 
Maybe it's not going to peter out, but it's going to be less prominent. I'm sure about it. So you can, nothing happens if you wait, if you think that uh, the uh, reaction could be very detrimental to your uh, academic career or your uh, life as a student. Uh, if you want to become a Shaheed, go to Palestine. Don't do it in Berkeley. Uh, Berkeley is not a place for, for, for Shuhada. It's, uh, uh, it's a place for good life and so on. So, so don't do this. Uh, but, but do make, yeah, make your stance. Make your stance. Uh, um, and, 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 and be a bully uh, in, against the bullies if you want and, uh, and don't give in but, but again calculate I think, I think that's what I would say and students of course it's, it's, it's not easy and it's not, and it's not easy for me to go into these shoes now because I'm not in that position but I think you said something very important if you don't do it now when you're vulnerable you also won't do it when you're positioned uh, is stronger, uh, and uh, and this is a very important lesson, lesson for life. Uh, and if you are at peace with yourself, and if you know that you are on solid moral ground, uh, you will be surprised that it won't be that easy to remove you, to suppress you, to silence you. Uh, it won't be easy, but it doesn't mean it's not doable. It's not doable. Thank you. Thank you, Ilan. Thank you very much.